Welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. And now, here's your host, CEO and co-founder of Scouts, Max Hansen. Welcome back to episode 78 of the Built on Purpose podcast brought to you by Scouts. I'm your host, Max Hansen, the CEO of Scouts, where we find purpose aligned and performance proven leaders. Speaking of, today our guest is Kim Rael, president and CEO of Azuka, the most efficient delivery system for Canada, cannabis edibles. Kim, welcome to the Built on Purpose podcast. Thank you, Max. I'm super excited to be here today. Awesome. Well, let's start out. Uh, let's start out with kind of an easier question. Tell us about Azuka. Uh, like, what is your current footprint? Number of states you're licensed in? Notable partnerships, and then we'll get into kind of what Azuka is after that. Sure. Um, so Azuka is in the cannabis edibles, or sometimes I use the term ingestibles, which is a little bit broader to include beverages and sublinguals and stuff uh, in the cannabis industry. And our current footprint, um, if you look big pictures, we have license agreements with partners that cover about 90% of the adult population, uh, if you go sort of state by state in North America and, and Canada. So pretty broad footprint through some of our key license partners um, in U.S., Canada, Puerto Rico now. Um, some of our notable partners that I think your listeners would recognize uh, is we have a licensing partnership with Wana Brands for their Wana Quick Gummies line, for their Wana Optimals and their Wana Spectrums, which are full uh, live rosin products. Um, so Wana's been a great brand to work with and uh, wonderful human beings at that company. Um, we have a, a a big partnership with Columbia Care, which is one of the large multi-state operators. I think they're in 18 to 18 to 20 states now. And again, just really an uh, incredible team, great to work with. Um, and then we have partnerships with individual brands and single state operators, for example, uh, revolutionary clinics in, in Massachusetts. So we really have a pretty broad, broad footprint. Um, and then just as a quick uh, clarification, when we say licensing, and because in cannabis, when people say license, they usually mean that you have a THC license okay. to produce in a in a state or in a jurisdiction uh, for us when we use the term licensing we mean we are licensing our know-how we're licensing our intellectual property our formulations the how to make these advanced cannabis formulations so we license the intellectual property to wanna brands to columbia care so it's really more of a uh, we look more, a little bit more like a biotech company with an ip licensing model i love it i love it and thank you for making that distinction it is, um, I mean, an awesome business model. Um, there's obviously there's a lot of benefits to it, which we'll, which we'll get into. But let's talk about that. Let's talk about what the Azuka patent pending time infusion does compared to traditional edibles. Sure. Um, so time infusion, the name actually means something. Uh, time itself, T-I-M-E, is an, an acronym for uh, thermodynamic individual molecular encapsulation, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but what our uh, infusion process does um, is we take these pesky uh, cannabis oil molecules, so like THC extract or CBD extract, which is an oil, and we encapsulate it or wrap it in a hydrophilic coating at an individual molecular level. Um, so what that does is it makes this oil molecule, which, you know, 
oil and water don't like each other, it makes it hydrophilic or water friendly. Um, and our bodies are over 60% water. So when you now consume this oil molecule that's encapsulated in a water friendly coating or jacket, the body gets really happy and uh, absorbs it very easily. Um, so what that means for consumers is that when you consume an edible that has been made with a Zuka time infusion, um, it is first and foremost, it's fast acting and predictable. So uh, what do I mean by that? The traditional edibles, um, often they'll carry warning that says, you know, wait up to two hours before you feel the full effect. So traditional cannabis edibles, um, they're just notorious for uh, very slow onset, very unpredictable uh, effects in the body. So our formulations solve that, you know, first most fundamental problem of cannabis edibles. Um, we do so in a way that also makes them taste great. Uh, our company was founded by Ron Silver, who's a chef in New York City. And Ron uh, has been a lover of the cannabis plant all his life and a chef. And he really wanted to make cannabis edibles that tasted great. So again, traditional edibles often taste kind of like um, the floor of a barn, like really extra acrid. Um, so we solved that problem as well. In addition to that, our products give consumers a really unique experience uh, in cannabis edibles, which is more of a smoker's um, experience in an edible form. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about Delta 9 THC versus 11 hydroxy THC, which is a traditional edible compound in a minute. But um, so in addition to tasting great and being fast acting, we also deliver this more uplifting euphoric effect, which is very different from traditional edibles, which deliver kind of that sedative couch lock effect. And then uh, last but not least, our formulations are very easy to dose precisely. So if you are a consumer that wants a microdose, one milligram or two milligrams of THC in a beverage or in any ingestible form, it's very easy to do that with our formulations. Uh, likewise, if you're you know, a medical patient who has the need for a, a much higher dose, you can also get that much higher dose in a fast onset product with our formulation. So very, almost um, infinitely flexible in terms of the dosing of the formulation. So lots of benefits for consumers. Awesome. Yeah. And I think the other one uh, that was kind of in there too, for somebody like myself that does like uh, using a vape pen, you don't have to necessarily ingest it through your lungs and maybe, you know, get coughing and stuff like that. So there's uh, also those uh, obvious benefits as well. So tell us, you started to talk about, which I love, when I saw your business model and I was kind of reading about it, just reading your site, I'm like, I love this business model. It's it's not asset heavy. It doesn't, you know, it's it's a pretty simple, straightforward business model, seems very scalable and it sounds like it's been very scalable. But talk about the advantages of the business model that you guys have built. Like I think, you know, there is a re uh, reduction of uh, lost dissolute, um, you know, just talk about the no equipment. Um, I think that you were talking about, you can onboard it with customers in the matter of hours, things like that. Are there, talk about, talk about the other ones that maybe I haven't covered. I'm just trying to remember the ones that we talked about. Yeah. So when we started out, we really wanted to um, help manufacturers of cannabis edibles make the best edibles that they possibly could. And so what we created was this licensing model. We call it, uh, we call it a Zuka in a box. 
And literally, we take everything that a manufacturer needs to make these really um, distinct, differentiated edibles so they, with the characteristics I just talked about. And we, we literally put it in a box. Um, and so it's, uh, as you said, completely scalable. Um, the There's no reliance on a third party, for example, to handle your cannabis for you. You get to control all of that process yourself as a manufacturer. Um, and as you know, most people know, you cannot ship cannabis products across state lines uh, in the United States or um, uh, or to foreign jurisdictions. So you need to be able to um, produce your product within a state jurisdiction and manufacture it there. So we've made that process completely scalable and repeatable. Um, and we have created a process that, as you mentioned, uh, helps reduce waste. So distillate, this cannabis extract that is used in almost all edibles, uh, it's very, it's a very high value ingredient. It's expensive. It's expensive to get to distillate when you're extracting the THC from the plant material. In our process for manufacturers, it can save them up to 20% of what's called um, transfer loss and oxidation loss in the cooking and manufacturing process. So a lot of times I talk about if you're a manufacturer making an edible and you're working with this ingredient called THC distillate, it's kind of like trying to cook with tree sap. Like if you've ever touched tree sap, it is sticky. It sticks to everything. Uh, it's, imagine trying to measure it precisely into a recipe to, to get it to blend uniformly, homogeneously into a recipe. So we solve all of those problems around measurement, um, you know, homogenization within a batch of, uh, of any edible. Um, and then we do it in a place that's uh, completely scalable. There's no expensive equipment required. So our formulations were created by a chef in a kitchen. So uh, very, uh, you know, no capital equipment required, kitchen friendly. And we've really taken all the hard part and put it um, into our precursor, which is called Activator, um, which we sell as part of the licensing agreement. So it's a pre, it's a non-infused food ingredient that is what does all the magic. So we can ship it anywhere in the world, right? It's not infused with any active THC or CBD. So it's, it's like shipping, you know, vanilla. So all of those things together really make it very straightforward for a brand or a multi-state operator or a single state operator to license our Azuka technology and put it into any product in their manufacturing line. Got it. Love it. And so how did you, you and I briefly talked about this on a prior phone call, but I'd love to get a little bit more into this. So how did you meet Ron and, uh, how did this all come about? Because the first thing I'm thinking as you're ta- telling me about this is, man, I wish Ron would have pitched this to me. This sounds like an incredible opportunity, and and obviously you've helped bring it along. But what what, what was that like? How did you and Ron meet, and, and when did you get the company officially off the ground? So, classic story. I was introduced to Ron by a classmate of mine from Stanford Business School who was starting to work in the industry. And I was at that time in my life taking a sabbatical. I'd left my you know, tech VC world and was pondering my next move and had really decided uh, to move into something in the health and wellness sector. Uh, to be honest with you, never in a million years was I thinking that it would be cannabis. Um, but I met Ron. Uh, I you know, sampled the product. I thought it was not a cannabis user or a cannabis um, you know, person. And I certainly immediately 
knew that the product was going to be um, a great product, a big hit for all kinds of of users and applications. So um, my my first reaction was like, wow, this is like having two glasses of wine with like 95% fewer calories. Very relaxing, very uplifting, and also without that sort of depressive edge of alcohol. Um, At that time, alcohol was sort of my, you know, drug of choice, um, for lack of a better term. Um, And so I thought, great product. Uh, And Ron uh, asked me, he said, I'm looking for a CEO. Would you, you know, come be my CEO? And I said, no. (laughs) Interesting product. You're in New York. I'm in Albuquerque. This is cannabis. I don't know anything about cannabis. No, you know, it's not a thing. I'm sure you get 13 million people in New York. You can find a a great CEO in New York. Um, And... So I went along my merry way, and a few months later, um, I spoke to Ron again. He was out in New Mexico, and um, he asked me again. He said, yeah, I'm still looking for a CEO for this thing. It's going to be really cool. And Ron is like, can sell anything. He's a wonderful human being, <laughs> huge personality, one of the smartest people I've ever met. Um, and I kind of said the same thing. Like, You're in New York. I'm in New Mexico. You know, it, you can find someone to do this and then the third time a few months later ron asked me a third time and i sort of like think about st paul in the bible like the third time is the charm the third time ron asked if i would um, be ceo of this company i was uh, moving my middle child from albuquerque to manhattan to start her freshman year in college in manhattan and so i just kind of you know sometimes as i say the gods must be crazy i just sort of like okay god i guess you um i guess you really want me to go do this cannabis thing in New York because here I am in New York and I'm going to be spending time here and um you know let me go let me go dig a little deeper because it seems this thing this thing keeps calling me um and so at that point I told Ron um okay Ron why don't we do this like why don't we pretend like I'm your CEO for about 90 days and see how it works see what it's like because I really had not done any true due diligence on you know, on cannabis, on the industry, uh, I really, I really was a newcomer, and I spent many years investing in technology startup companies. So I basically just put on my VC investor hat on and looked at this. Um, it, it wasn't a company yet, but looked at this opportunity as I would um, doing due diligence on any on um, on any investment. But only in this case, I was looking at investing. Um, you know, really my most valuable asset, which is my time. And um, also I wanted to really get to know Ron and make sure we were a good team, um, uh, complimentary partnership. And so I was like, don't pay me anything. I, you know, let's just see how this works. And, you know, if after 90 days, we decided it's not a good fit. You owe me nothing. You owe me no stock. Like, it's... Uh, so that's the way we approached it. Was like, let's just really be curious and open and explore. Um, and so I started diligencing the industry, um, you know, understanding the formulations that Ron had created. I mean, I was, you know, I'm not a chef and I'm not a chemist, um, but I love, you know, plant medicine. I've been concocting herbal remedies since I was like 10 years old. Um uh, and so I've always had a fascination with plant and herbal-based um, wellness and beauty products and approaches. So it was it was kind of a natural fit for my, you know, the the little, you know, explorer girl in me that just loved concocting things. Um, so fast forward, I completely fell in love with 
um, the, all of the of what we could do with this. Um, I became educated on the medicinal power of the cannabis plant, which I was frankly ignorant of. Um, I think I told you before that I was the, you know, Nancy Reagan, just say no generation hook, line, and sinker. So I went through a whole process to completely re-educate myself on the history of cannabis criminalization, the, as I said, the benefits of the cannabis plant, um, and, you know, here we are. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I think I was raised the same way. My parents, I remember telling, they used to have conversations mm -hmm. with me and they'd say, if you take just one puff of marijuana, you could be hooked for the rest of your life. I remember being told that when I was a kid and, uh, and I love my parents. I think that that was just obviously what they were being fed by that same kind of side of things. And then you also went as far having that, um, being raised that way and having that view on cannabis how and when did that change? I mean, obviously, it started to change as you were doing due diligence in this process, or was it before uh, you uh, even met Ron? No, it, it really wasn't before I met Ron. It was, which is part of why sometimes I tell people that I sort of, you know, fell into Canada kicking and screaming because I still had that mentality when I agreed to pretend to be his CEO for three months. So, um, you know, to the point where, you know, when my middle child was in high school, she was caught, you know, at some school event with a bunch of friends and they had joined, you know, some minor thing and got in trouble. And they had the little, they all got in trouble at school. And then when the parents were called, she had to um, write a 5,000 word essay for mommy uh, as additional punishment on the evils of cannabis because I was, you know, like your parents were like, this is a federal crime. This is, you know, gateway drug, dangerous, all of, all of the brainwashing. Uh, like I said, I, I had it, I, I had it, I had that disease strongly. <laughs> um, and, you know, fast forward a few years when I'm CEO of a cannabis company, my adult children are, you know, having a nice little chuckle to themselves. Um, but, but I do remind them that, you know, there's one thing about your mom, like, you know, I may be stubborn, I may be hard headed but I do take in new information and I can change my perspective on things when I, when I get new information, which I did very diligently around cannabis uh, when I was looking at the industry, but it is kind of funny. We do. We used to laugh about it around. our <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. I kind of went in the same way. I, in fact, I've taken um, some of the courses uh, that they offer now about, you know, that kind of a history of cannabis and learning all that. I think one of the things that came up in one of my prior or our prior podcasts was with Jamie Pearson at Bang, and she was talking about how long, you know, when you take a drug test, how long marijuana or cannabis will stay in your body, and it hangs onto it for like 30 days because it it doesn't want to get rid of it, which I thought was an interesting point. Mm -hmm. I've never heard that, you know, somebody point that out, but that was one of the milestones that where I was thinking, huh, that is true. Were there any milestones while you're like becoming, call it, informed about cannabis that were significant to you uh, that you remember? You know, I think the one of my personal biggest aha moments um, was coming across this study called the Harm Index, um, which you may have seen, and 
uh, you know, if we were on video, I'd want to pull up this graph and show you. But it was a study that was done on, I think, about 20 different substances, you know, recreational substances from marijuana, alcohol, tobacco, um, psilocybin, the whole gamut, right? Methamphetamine. And it looked at data and actually plotted the harm, um, the relative harm of each of these substances on human society, you know, death, um, health, um, just a whole bunch of metrics. And, you know, cannabis is very, very low on this harm index, right? Um, I think, you know, psilocybin is lower, but it's very, very low. Um, and you can guess what most harmful substance is. Oh, I guess alcohol, but uh, is that correct? It's alcohol. Okay. By far, mm-hmm. by far, right? And and it was such an aha moment to me because you know, as I said, wine was my you know my go to adult you know relaxing activity at that time, and ethanol, which is the active molecule in all alcoholic beverages, no matter how much you know grape juice and sugar and whatever you wrap around it, it's ethanol, is a poison to the human body. Like, straight up, right? It's an addictive poison. And that awareness to me, um, and, you, you know, it sort of grew on me over the years to the point where I, I don't I don't consume alcohol anymore. I used to love wine. And I'm just like, I, I, don't, I don't really want to poison my body anymore. And I, I actually think that, um, you know, I'm kind of digressing, but I, I, I ponder about alcohol, you know, ethanol as the active ingredient in alcohol hitting its nicotine moment at some point in time where there's this, you know, this this pivot point where all of a sudden as a society, we're like, is nicotine is not such a great thing. I think, I think, you know, I have young adult children um, and I think they are, smarter than my generation certainly was about alcohol. So, um, yeah, I think that that just becoming educated on how the thing that we always thought was, quote, safe, socially acceptable, you know, promoted as sexy and how you relax and, you know, there's alcohol at every adult gathering and we had it at every family gathering and whatnot, that, that that thing is actually incredibly harmful. And this other thing, cannabis, that had been demonized to us as children, right? Um, is actually safe and actually helpful, actually medicinal in many applications. So the juxtaposition of those two things, I think, was my biggest um, aha moment. And it's also sort of it's kind of my biggest, my biggest soapbox, I think, in the industry, because when I think about the evolution of, of the cannabis industry and you know the evolution of society, I look forward to the time where you know adults can be in a social setting out with friends and have an alcohol-free, you know, socially sessionable cannabis cocktail right next to their friend who orders a glass of Chardonnay, right? And they're equally acceptable, equally great tasting, equally socially, responsibly enjoyable and consumed. So I, I see that coming. 
Um, and, you know, by the way, you know, without the hangover and the many of the um, harmful uh, side effects of alcohol. Gosh, what what an awesome! You found, you found my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're. This is amazing. I've never had somebody say it so clear, concise, and compelling. Exactly how I feel as well. I will fully admit, though, I have an 18, 17, and sixteen year old, and I don't consume cannabis in front of them, but yet I'll consume alcohol in front of them. So it, you got me thinking, and I think you just pushed me off that you know off the edge, just to be honest with them, because I feel the exact same way. I have changed my lifestyle to not really drinking that much during the week as I work out and then I work and I want to be clear headed and, uh, you know, I use cannabis every once in a while and then I'm not hung over. So for you just to say so clear and concise and compelling like that is, uh, is amazing. Tell us, um, tell us about your career, uh, with startups prior to starting Azuka. Um, I, 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 you know, you had a very successful career. You worked at some really, great companies. Um, you've sat on a lot of boards. You've been an investor. How has this prior experience prepared you for the cannabis industry, but more specifically for Azuka? Because I kind of look at, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, because this is a layman terms, Azuka feels more like a technology play uh, because you're you're obviously, you have a, a patent and pending process and it's a licensing. <laughs> but tell me how your experience, like what what prepared you the best uh, prior to going to Azuka in your career? Yeah, I, I kind of laugh when people ask me, like, how do you prepare for the cannabis industry? And I got to tell you, uh, nothing prepares you for the cannabis industry. Um, I tell people all the time when they talk to me about this industry, and I've done complex, I've been in complex, high-tech settings, um, you know, all my career. And this is the hardest thing I've ever done, um, hands down. And I, you know, I really encourage people looking at getting into this industry to be very thoughtful about the complexity of this industry. So, you know, I, I think the question is actually kind of funny, like, how do you prepare for this industry that you just like, it's like, how do you prepare for parenthood? It's like, oh, my God, like you, you didn't know. I tell my team all the time, like, we are doing something in business that nobody has ever done before. We are creating a new segment of a new emerging industry in a way that's not been done before in a regulatory framework that is like playing whack-a-mole, right? Because the rules are different in every state. The rules are different for TBD, CBD versus THC. Um, so we're, we're, we're creating something new. There's no playbook. There's no recipe for what we're doing, which is super exciting and really hard. Um, but, you know, to sort of pull up a minute and say like, what, so I, I uh, spent seven years at Intel during the Andy Grove days. So semiconductors in the 1990s was, uh, it does remind me a lot of cannabis, right? Very fast growth up into the right, high intensity. Um, often, you know, you can't meet demand. Um, and then it's also fits and starts, right? You know, you, you go, 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 go. And then you're like, oh my gosh, we have oversupply stock. So a lot of um, sort of it starts with supply chain, et cetera, which I've certainly seen in the cannabis industry. So what was what I really got out of my time, um, you know, my earlier business career at Intel was uh, I have such an ingrained um, practice around quality and safety. That came from all of my years at Intel where quality systems um, and safety were 
uh, they, they just were everything that we did. And I always worked at Intel's um, in, in the manufacturing environment, um, in operations uh, and strategy. So I just have that in my blood. The other thing I have in my blood is scalability, which I think is what has made our approach to the industry um, really quite unique because from the first, like from getting our first kind of beta products done and tested and off the shelf, my, I was like, okay, now how do we scale this? How do you scale this thing in an industry where you can't ship anything across state lines? And I was really obsessed with doing that um, in a way that built a profitable business. And it was my training around disciplined systems and documentation and quality systems that I just, you know, I lived and breathed for seven years at Intel that I think really informed that. Um, and then I spent, you know, a dozen years, both as a startup executive, doing very complex um, work. You know, one of my startup companies that I co-founded was a, a Brave New World Energy company, incredibly complex. Um, and then as an investor, I mean, things change every day when you're investing in tech startup companies. You are, it is another version of playing whack-a-mole with a lot of, you know, one minute it's a personnel issue, the next minute it's a marketing issue, the next minute it's a finance issue, the next minute it's a, you know, a supply chain issue. So a lot of the chaos of startups in the tech world certainly transfers over. So, um, and then earlier in my career, before I went to business school, I spent a couple of years on Capitol Hill in the U.S. Senate doing um, policy work. And so I've always had kind of an inherent appreciation and understanding of the policy and regulatory world because, um, you know, I spent a couple of years on Capitol Hill and then I've always kind of had a toe in it as a volunteer, as a citizen. I've been very involved in a lot of boards um, and, you know, policy issues as a citizen in New Mexico. I've never worked back in the public sector, but I've always certainly been very involved from a community perspective. So I think the combination of scalability, manufacturing, quality systems, the chaos of complex startups, and then just an inherent, uh, not only understanding, but actually appreciation for um, for the regulatory world. I think that smart, thoughtful regulations are really important for consumer and public safety in this industry. So I don't look at our regulators as, you know, the big bad enemies. I just, sometimes they're uninformed. Sometimes they write regulations in jurisdictions that make no sense or that are technically impossible to comply with. Like literally, like the, the infrastructure doesn't exist to comply with some of the regulations that have been written in some jurisdictions. But all of that being said, I really have respect for um, for the regulators who are working in and with this industry to bring safe quality cannabis to the public. You know, it's funny, obviously, hindsight 2020, as you talk about your experience starting uh, with the, the regulatory stuff uh, and government stuff, it was was this some of the stuff that Ron helped, like, I point out as he was saying, hey, you're going to be perfect for this role? Or was, was he more focused on other stuff? Because I'm sitting there thinking in my head, like, man, she does technically have a perfect background to build this company out, starting with the Intel experience and obviously with the other stuff stacked on top of it. But was this some of the stuff that Ron was telling you as you guys were trying to figure out if you were the right person to, to lead this business? You know, that, that's a funny question. I guess you'd have to ask Ron that, but I, I don't, I don't think so. I think it was a gut. You have to ask Ron. I think it was a gut feel. I think <laughs> it was a gut feel about like we, and we're kind of yin and yang. I sometimes call us the odd couple of cannabis because I'm sort of this MBA girl scout and he is this, you know, 
chef, artist, creative, bigger than life pers- personality. Um, and so it just, it works, it works really well in part because we are so different. <laughs> got it. But I think it was a, I think it was a gut feel for fun, honestly. Got it. Got it. Okay. And, and another question, this, this is, um, as I have kids going off to college and looking at different colleges, how much would you attribute your undergrad education at Harvard and MBA at Stanford, obviously two incredible, um, uh, schools, how much would you attribute your success in business towards your education? You know, I, I mean, I feel like I was so blessed as a, a little kid from a coal mining town in northern New Mexico to get to go to places like that, that, you know, we would only read about when we were kids. Um, so certainly um, far beyond anything I ever dreamed about as, as a kid growing up in the hills in northern New Mexico. Um Obviously, uh, yeah, I got to work with some of the best and brightest minds on the planet in both of those places. And, you know, my undergrad, I would say, developing confidence and learning to think, just learning to think. I, I majored in international relations, which doesn't have a lot to do with what I'm doing today. Um, and Stanford Business School was an incredible place. Um, and like I said, my introduction to cannabis and uh, to Ron was a Stanford Business School classmate. So certainly the people um, that I met and worked with. Uh, and in graduate school, um, I, I would tell my, I do tell my young adult kids, like, it's all about the people. Meet everybody, you know, talk to everybody, understand, like, meet different people. Don't just hang out with people who, who are like you, who think like you. Um, I think one of the things those experiences did for me, Max, really was, again, I grew up in a little coal mining town in, in the hills of northern New Mexico, and they, going to just such different places with such different people. And I also lived abroad, you know, in South America on a Rotary scholarship after college and just got great adventures. I am comfortable anywhere on the planet talking to anybody on the planet. Um, and I feel like that's the gift uh, that I got from those experiences above all else. And it certainly helps in cannabis because cannabis is full of all kinds of people from all walks of life. Um, which makes it super interesting. Um, but I, I just feel comfortable and curious about people everywhere. Um, and I feel grateful that I've had the experiences that just kept opening my eyes to all the things I never, you know, I didn't ever dream of as a little kid. So I'm just sure. wildly curious. You know, I would uh, humbly say I do not have the education credentials you do, but I would say that was my gift too, is I feel very confident. I've been to about 30-something countries, feel very confident yeah. people in different situations, um, really, you know, just about anywhere. And then you and I talked about, there was like a couple significant points in your career that kind of pushed you along, uh, Let's you know, kind of pushed you along to where you are today. But I think one of them you were talking about just some of the things you dealt with in the Silicon Valley startups um, and being involved with them. Can you elaborate on uh, what some of those experiences were with some, some of those startups? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, so I, I loved back in the sort of the chaos and craziness of it. And I've been in venture capital for about 10 years. And, you know, the data is all very clear, very, you know, male dominated industry, almost all VC dollars goes to male founders starting to change around the edges now, thank God. Um, but at the time, um, and I was, I was making a decision to pivot from tech to wellness, um, there was just a certain ethos of 
Silicon Valley, which is the ecosystem that I basically operated in, even though I lived in Albuquerque, my toes and my brain were mostly in Silicon Valley. And there was an arrogance, to be quite honest with you, uh, in the whole tech eco startup ecosystem, certainly in the venture capital ecosystem. Um, and there was a real, uh, you know, this has been documented, there have been books written on using this term, the Brotopia of Silicon Valley. Um, and one of the final straws for me that made me, you know, decide, I love startups, I love the chaos, I was done with tech, was um, I had invested in a company with, with uh, a 25-year-old male founder. And, um, you know, come to find out through the grapevine, you know, because it's a small world, even though the company was in Boston and I live in Albuquerque, um, could not stand having a 50-year-old woman on his board, um, even though, and, and by the way, there were two of us <laughs> who had funded the company. Um, and it was really this sickening obsession with, with money and the arrogance of the traditional kind of venture world. I was just done with it. Life's too short. Um, I wanted to be with people where I really felt an alignment of values and where I could walk in a room and just be myself, like no mask, and, you know, well, not the, the COVID mask. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, or we, we talk about like sometimes in life and in careers, we wear, you know, we wear a certain mask, a certain persona into a room. I mean, I was usually the only woman in a boardroom. I was usually the only female investor. I was usually, you know, all of, all but all of the companies who made a significant investment in were was male founders. I mean, the whole, it, it was, I was, I didn't want to be in that world anymore. Awesome. Did you, from what, what's challenging for you now in business? I mean, it sounds like, like you just named, I mean, from, from your education to just the different, you know, VC world is not for everybody. Obviously you navigated that well, talked about some of the challenges. What are some of the things that you still find difficult? You know, the thing that comes to mind for me, the thing that I find difficult is any engagement where the other party or the other organization is behaving in any way that I experience as dishonest or unethical. That flips my switch. Mm. I have no tolerance for it. So I can deal with hard things. I can deal with you know, personnel issues, I can deal with business challenges, I can deal with supply chain issues, I can deal with whatever, you know, um, when someone, you know, violates an, an agreement and just basically says like, yeah, you know, whatever, you know, you're a little startup, we're the big guy, whatever the context is, or even just, a, you know, on an individual to individual basis, we have a no assholes rule at our company, we uh, care very much about our culture, and we have walked away from business um, we also have a, like do business with people you want to have dinner with role. <laughs> like if, if you go to a meeting with someone or an onsite with someone or with the crew and you like get that tingly spidey sense and you don't want to have dinner with them, listen to that. You know, like life's too short and we will walk away from business if we are in any way concerned about the ethical or legal practices of the other party. I love that. Yeah, that's the part. It's one of the ethical challenges. On um, yeah, but other stuff is just you know, you know, it's hard to get banking in cannabis. It's hard to you know, we've had credit, we've had all the issues in cannabis, all the hard business things. It's the hardest business I've ever done. But the hard thing is 
having to navigate when you encounter someone who is behaving from an ethical platform that I just have no, I have no tolerance for. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think in the cannabis business early on, we saw a lot of that with licensing and who was getting licensing and all that. So I'm glad we kind of flushed a lot of that through. Going back to your uh, life, I remember you made a decision once you're trying to figure out what you're going to do next about it being around health and wellness. And you talked about a specific moment where you overwhelmingly, you know, kind of hit that like, hey, this is what I need to do. Can you talk about that moment that you shared with me? Um, I think it was, I think you were hiking. Yeah, I was hiking. I was absolutely hiking. So, yeah, so I, I you know, been an investor forever, and uh, my husband ran for governor. So I spent a year being a full-time political wife. Um, he lost in the primary, but he's a great guy. Um, and you know, ten years in venture capital and startup world, and the year of statewide campaign, I was a physical train wreck. So I was forty-nine years old. I was like probably almost two hundred pounds. I was out of shape. I was just, you know, I was a mess. And, um, I, we went on a family road trip after, um, after my husband lost in the primary and we were in Yellowstone and I was on this beautiful trail in Yellowstone. It was very steep, lots and lots of steps, thousands of feet of this vertical climb. And, um, I'm kind of huffing and puffing and enjoying the scenery. I love the outdoors, but like I'm physically like miserable. My knees hurt. And I see these two women up ahead of me who had to have been at least in their mid seventies. and. I'm like, it just, I had this moment. It was this flash. I'm like, I'm 49. I want to be that 80 year old woman. I don't want to be the one I'm on the path of becoming, right? Sedentary, out of shape, whatever. I mean, I want, I want to climb the mountain until I'm 90. And it was just, it, it flipped a switch in me. And, um, you know, I've never looked back. So that made me both for my personal life uh, and also for what I wanted to do with my professional life. It was the moment that I said, I, I really want to um, be part of something that helps people's lives be healthier, be, you know, on their wellness journey. So I thought about things like before I ended up in cannabis, like raising a venture capital fund to invest in wellness um, startups, which would have you know been a good fit for me. Um, but then I ended up doing this, which I am super happy. I love doing what I'm doing. Um, so, yeah, those. Whoever those two women were on that deep trail in Yellowstone, thank you for being there because it was a wake-up moment for me. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that story. I think it's uh, super mm. impactful and uh, obviously you know, has helped you get to your path or on your path that you're on today. Uh, where do you see the cannabis? I'm going to throw kind of a, a random but uh, question that I usually throw out most of the guests uh, so the audience can hear, but where do you see the cannabis, cannabis industry in five years? So, you know, we've all been talking about when the federal um, legalization is going to happen. We've been talking about that since I joined the industry five years ago. Um, so that debate aside, I think that the cannabis industry is going to evolve sort of bifurcated. And I think there will be this evolution that looks, you know, somewhat like the, um, you know, CPG and, and, you know, beverage industry, particularly the adult beverage industry. And then there'll be this other segment that it looks more like traditional, you know, pharma biotech. Um, and then probably a third segment that looks more like a nutraceutical segment. Um, and the big um, wild card in all of this 
is how does the regulatory frame play out, particularly on a federal level? Um, and I will tell anybody who will listen to me, and this is because I have enough, you know, Washington, D.C. experience to just be dangerous um, early in my career, is I am terrified that the federal government uh, may legalize cannabis the way it legalized hemp. And in my opinion, um, the 2018 Farm Bill, which legalized hemp for, uh, you know, in the United States, um, but immediately handed it over to the FDA, the Department of Agriculture, the DEA, was an absolute disaster for the hemp uh, and CBD industry uh, for reasons we could, you know, spend a whole another hour talking about. And my concern is that even advocates in the cannabis industry get caught up in this broad concept of federal uh, legalization and, you know, social justice and expungement, which is very important um, at the federal level, but aren't looking at the details of some of those uh, legislative initiatives. And there are some uh, of the draft bills that I will tell every colleague in this industry, devil's in the details, people, um, you need to read that legislation because of the cannabis industry ending up in the train wreck um, that the CBD industry ended up in after it was, quote, federally legalized. Got it. No, that's this. I think you uh, better, better, better off state by state than a screwed up federal legalization as in the way hemp was done. Yeah, absolutely. You, you kind of alluded to the same thing as a prior guest, Fife Symington, uh, who heads up Copper State in Arizona. He grew potatoes mm. in, in Mexico for many years, and he kind of alluded to the same thing. He said, you know, it is much, as good as the U.S., uh, you know, DA was, I think it was who he's dealing with. He's like, the sooner, mm-hmm. the, the longer we leave them out, the smoother this will be uh, to a certain extent. Uh, so I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of background to that. Well, we have, we're, we're closing in on the hour. And one thing that we always do on uh, the Built on Purpose podcast is we take, we ask you a couple questions uh, through our leadership model. We have a leadership model for hiring and we believe the best leaders on earth, which I'd put you in that category. I know you'll humbly, uh, you're very humble about it. Uh, but we believe the best leaders on earth are relentless learners. They develop the other people and they drive results. So from the, from the standpoint of, um, you know, uh, from the standpoint of relearn, learning relentlessly, who or what was your biggest teacher? Yeah, I love Jim Collins. He was the teacher of mine at Stanford Business School. We, you know, stayed in touch since business school. Um, his book, Great by Choice, I think is one of the best books ever for people who it's on how do you thrive during times of chaos well there's nothing more chaotic than cannabis so i highly recommend it um but i I could go on and on about jim collins and his his research and his teaching but if you want it quick i'd say leave it at that (laughs) and what was your biggest life learning to date um so you know this is a hard one but you learn it the hard way i think my biggest life learning is that, um, you know, we are spiritual beings first and foremost, followed by that we are embodied physical beings and everything else we do flows out of that. So if we are spiritually unhealthy or sick, if we are physically worn down, 
um, we cannot be effective in our work life or our family life, right? So it's spirit first, body next, and everything else must flow out of that. And I learned that the hard way when I was at Intel. I had three, I was working like a maniac. I had three miscarriages in a row. Um, it was the most devastating experience of my life. Um, and it was because I was not, you know, spirit and body were out of line because I was all about the work. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. And then, um, developing others, uh, who or what developed you the most in your life? It's such a combination of people, um, and experiences. I have to say, it's going to sound cheesy, but being a parent, um, just being able to humbly nurture these emerging humans at their different stages of life. So my kids are 27, 23, and 16 now. And serving them as a parent and treating them not as children, but as emerging humans has been my greatest, my greatest teacher, <laughs> my hardest job. That's awesome. That's actually exactly what Nancy Whitman said as well. So I think great minds think alike. Uh, from a driving results standpoint, uh, you're a pretty humble person, but what would you say is your biggest success to date? I am very proud of this company. Um, and I, I feel like we've built a disciplined team that has built a you know profitable, growing business that treats people with kindness and respect uh, everywhere we go. And I just love this team. From uh, and this is kind of near and dear to our heart, our heart because of what we do on the hiring side. But in what types of leaders have you found make the biggest impact in such an emerging industry like cannabis? I, I think the heart, you know, the purpose based, the heart based leaders, and you know, people you just mentioned Nancy Whiteman. I mean, Nancy Whiteman um, walks the talk. Uh, I was lucky enough to sit down next to Nancy Whiteman probably after I'd been in the industry maybe a year at one of those awkward, you know, trade show lunches where you get your lunch and you randomly sit down somewhere. Well, I sat down, fortunately, next to Nancy, or she sat down next to me, actually. And she has been a, a role model, someone who I admire greatly because she really does, I think, lead with um, a true care for people, for quality, um, sense of humor. Good Lord, sense of humor is so important. Um, and then I, I look at some of the, um, you know, the longstanding leaders and advocates, like Stephen D'Angelo is, is popping into my mind right now. Um, so it's the people who really are role modeling, um, leading with purpose and with heart in this industry and doing things right and being kind along the way. Like kindness is not weak, right? Being kind to people is actually a great show of strength and wisdom. Um, so I, you know, I talk to my team a lot about, we can do hard things in a kind way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Beautifully said, beautifully said. Yeah. Both Steve and Andrew D'Angelo, we've spent some time with, and, uh, you're right. They are, their heart is in it and they are really pushing everything for mm -hmm. the right reasons and making sure that we don't forget on, on, you know, how we got here. Um, so, uh, mm -hmm. thank you for sharing, mm -hmm. uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, and then, you know, I, I think the, the probably the last thing uh, I'd want to touch on only because we started to talk mm -hmm. about it, but what do you do outside of work to help keep yourself balanced and productive? You, you know, you touched on 
being out of balance at Intel and going through those tough times. But um, what do you do now to, to keep what routines, daily rituals and, and habits do you uh, do you have that have helped you kind of stay balanced as a leader and as a person, as a husband, as a mother, all those things? <laughs> you know, I, I am someone who I think that the concept of balance is kind of a myth, um, especially in the kind of you know role and the kinds of things I choose to do, which by their just by their nature, they require a lot of intensity. So I am someone who, for me, what works is kind of a series of sprinting and resting, right? Uh, I would not say that my day-to-day life is something that I would I would use the term balance to describe. But I will work really, really, really hard, and then I will take a rest period. Um, I mentioned I took a sabbatical, you know, before. it was That was about two years. Um, might have been even longer after I left the venture world before I started Azuka. And um, after Azuka, I probably will take another uh, sabbatical. Um, but aside from that, on, on a day-to-day basis, certainly I love being outdoors. Um, I have such an overactive brain. that just, you know, I love just sitting in silence, right? If I go on vacation, I don't, I don't need a book. If I sit on the beach, I don't need a book. I don't even usually listen to music um, because I just, I love silence. And, um, you know, I did, I had the, was able to take a two year study with a couple, you know, uh, Father Richard Rohr, James Finley, Cynthia Bergeau. It was a two year study of the, you know, the great mystic teachers of our lifetime, I think, in the Christian tradition. And I did that, the, year before and the first year I was launching this company. And um, so I have, I would say, a lot of tools of the contemplative practice in my toolbox. And so I would aspire to do, you know, my 20 or 40 minute meditation daily. I don't, but I know I have it in my toolbox when I need it. Um, So I think that to sort of some... Education and training and awareness of the tools of spiritual health are really important for me to have in my toolbox. Um, and, you know, like I said, love nature, love to hike, uh, you know, love to climb mountains, love to camp. It's simple things, you know, simple things and silence. I love it. Those are, uh, those are great. Those are great. Those are very helpful to me as well. I actually just made my. I spend the uh, winters in Scottsdale, Arizona, and it's kind of a hustle and bustle there. And then the summers I spend in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and I'm here now, and I already feel so much more mm-hmm. calm and focused. Uh, it's amazing. So I think that there's a lot of truth to that, and it's kind of hitting home. Mm-hmm. How do our listeners get a hold of you guys and support you? So I, I think your web, your URL is azuka.co. Is that correct? Uh, that's an old one. We actually, um, you, you can find us there, but azukatime.com okay. is easier for people to remember. Azukatime.com, there's a link where you can set up a meeting with us right there on the website. So literally, if you click that link, we'll get back to you within 48 hours and get a Zoom call set up. We can talk all about uh, what we're up to at Azuka and how you know, we could potentially partner with you. Well, I have enjoy my time with you this is amazing i probably could chat with you for another hour but i want to be respectful of your time and uh i just want to thank you for everything you shared today love the business model i look forward to seeing uh how you guys progress 
And uh, you have been listening to the Built on Purpose podcast with Max Hansen, brought to you by Scouts. You can find all of our past and future podcasts at Wisecouts.com. And Kim, I'll give you the last word. What advice would you give our audience to help them excel in both their personal and professional life? So I have a favorite saying, um, and it is it is this. Um, almost anything that happens that goes wrong, I'm like, you know, that's the problem with the solution. You know, if the day is going wrong, if there's a, you know, um, it, it tends to just de-escalate things where, you know, people are escalating the conflict or whatever. And what I have found is almost always if there's a problem or a conflict, that, that there's there's a solution to it. And just sort of, you know, not getting upset. If someone does, you know, has done something that's upsetting or they think I'm going to be upset or angry about, it's just like, you know, mm, yeah, you really screwed up, but that's a problem with the solution, right? Let's focus on the solution. And I think that language can be really powerful in de-escalating and driving alignment, both, you know, with your family, um, with uh, your your workmates, your partners. Um, so I love just focusing on, hey, yeah, that's a problem with the solution. Let's focus on that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, thank you for your time today. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. And have a great rest of your week. Thanks for listening to the Built on Purpose podcast, where on each episode, we interview exceptional leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, philosophers, and some straight up interesting people to explore their outlook on life, work, and leadership. You can hear any of our previous shows 24-7 wherever you get your podcasts.